I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Today we introduce a new feature on the podcast, the warm-up, with the famous, or soon-to-be-famous, or deservedly famous, but certainly fabulous, Erin Scala. Hi, everybody. I'm Erin Scala. And um, you know how every good meal, you need a little uh, glass of sherry or some champagne or an aperitif beforehand? Well, that's kind of like what I am. I'm a little aperitif to the I'll Drink to That podcast. So get warmed up, get ready for the meats coming next. And here you go, some fun stuff. And here's what Aaron has to say today on the warm up. Warm up, warm up, warm up, warm up, So these days, most of us are on Twitter, but not all tweets are created equal. And some of you are amazing at tweeting. There's one Twitter feed that stands out as being incredibly raw and awesome. Carla Rosicki's tweets are at times hilarious, at other times intimate. Sometimes you'll see these nuggets of Zen wisdom that can really set your day right on course. It's one of my favorite Twitter feeds to read of all the sommeliers out there because it's just awesome and honest and cool and real. Well, today we have a special guest, Franz. Franz is a graphic artist by day and an incredible bartender by night. And Franz is also here to read... In his amazing radio voice, tweets from Carla. Franz, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We're happy to have you. And that's an awesome radio voice that you have there. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) First time, first time. All right. Well, let's read some of our favorite tweets from Carla. Carla has amazing life advice, and sometimes it hits you really hard and raw. On any given day, you might get a thought on being direct. Celebrate the violence of articulation. It is freedom. And sometimes you'll get advice on how to conduct a day off. Swim all day, dance all night, fall in love, pizza. 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 Pizza is the perfect metaphor. You know, they say um, pizza is like like sex. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Could be good, could be bad, but, you know. It's always. No one hates pizza. Oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> oh, Franz. Um, <laughs> so also, sometimes from Carla, you'll get a lesson on how to be. How can a human being be thirst quenching? This is happening. I didn't even know I had this thirst. Sweet lessons. Steve. 
Jack Handy. It's Jack Handy deep. It's really Jack Handy deep. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here's another thing that I love about her tweets. She'll write about amazing experiences. So in your life, you'll have, there will be that one day when you have that greatest uh, orange that you'll ever have in your life. You'll bite into it and you'll be like, this is the greatest orange I've ever had in my life. And for the rest of your life, you'll never have an orange like that again. So every day, uh, you have an opportunity to experience the greatest blank of something in your life. Like you might experience the greatest weather. One day we'll have the most amazing weather. You might experience the greatest swim, the greatest piece of fish, whatever it is. Like every day is an opportunity to experience that most amazing thing that you could ever possibly experience in your entire life. What will you experience today? That moment when you bite into the world's perfect nectarine and realize everything is just as it should be. Have you had a piece of fruit like that recently? Yeah, I had a, a very, very succulent mango. I, I put it in a, I put it, <laughs> I put it in a smoothie with a bunch of other things, but the mango was so sweet. I forgot everything else that was in the smoothie. Was it the best mango of your life? Uh, to date, yes. Awesome. That's so cool. Well, I recently had the best, um, the best meat of my life. I've never experienced like, I had some dry, a piece of dry aged meat. It was just a, like a, a kitchen scrap, but it was seriously like the best thing I'd ever had in my life. I couldn't even believe it. I walked away just like forever changed. You know, like, it was awesome. Well, I think the cool thing about, you know, experiencing things like that for the first time is it always feels like the first time every time you experience it. So that's why I said to date. I know maybe next week I might experience that mango again for the first time and it would be the best. And now I want dry aged meat. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm hungry. <laughs> um, okay. Also, sometimes Carla will give us quotes from amazing people in life. Sometimes she'll quote Moby Dick to remind you of important life lessons. The path to my fixed purpose is laid with iron rails, whereon my soul is grooved to run. Or maybe you'll get a snippet of poetry. If the world knew how much they loved each other, then we would all be better off. We could all dive headfirst into the sticky parts. That's some crazy poetry right there. Yeah, feet first. I go feet first. (laughs) (laughs) I know, you don't want to like mess up the hair. You know what I mean? You dive head first and some crazy stuff can happen up there. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Oh, I'm sorry, Franz. You don't I'm bald. You're, he's bald. <laughs> I know, I was, I was trying to imagine me diving head first, ah. you know. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, sometimes Carla reminds us to live life to the fullest, even if that exhausts you. I'm a bit hollowed out by loving so hard and so fully. But on the flip side, I'm energized by the promise of possibilities. Life is bursting. Bursting like a mango smoothie. Like the best mango smoothie of your life. Mm-hmm. All, in, on a, all in a starburst. Yeah. Oh my gosh. When was the last time you had a starburst? Two days ago. Really? Yeah. It wasn't a high chew? High chews are taken over. You know yeah, that? N- no. no. No, I'm old school. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> starburst and M&M's. <laughs> And sometimes Carla will tweet about the minutiae of daily life, and you can see reflections in your own job. Midnight entering of micros buttons. I wouldn't call this the sexiest part of the job. Necessary? Sure. Dun, dun, dun. Micros buttons. The bane of all of our existences. Yeah, they should shut down at midnight. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes... This restlessness gets me. It creeps late night real stealth-like. Smart. Sometimes even working and sweating and running wild won't break it. But sometimes. Sometimes a long day at work is just what a girl needs to get her head back in the game. 
I don't ever want to lose the grind and its allure. And sometimes her tweets showcase the difficult parts of being human, and they can just make your heart ache. Sometimes your day ends with total agonizing lack of success. This balance is needed, but goddamn it smarts. Tomorrow, you're in my crosshairs. And sometimes she'll remind you of the beauty of New York City. Walking through Union Square, there's music playing and people dancing. Passers-by stop to watch, all gently smiling. The wonder is palpable. I love it when that happens, when you're walking down the street and everything just kind of like comes into focus, you know? Yeah, it happens when I take my headphones off and realize there's actual stuff going on around me, <laughs> like noise. So it makes me like focus on, oh, I didn't see that there before. Words New Yorkers, walk around more without your headsets on. Focus. <laughs> I remember the first time I put headsets on in New York because I used to never wear them. And I would be so involved and so get so caught up in what was going on. And then I started wearing them and I was like, wow. It's like you can totally check out from the sidewalk. Yeah, that's how I mute. That's put how I put on NYC on mute. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Franz, what's on your headphones right now? Oh, what am I listening to? Yeah, yeah. Ooh, so I had uh, Pandora, James Brown. Nice. James Browned. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, James. James Brown. <laughs> on the headset. Wow. Cool. And, uh, and sometimes she'll show you how beautiful New York is. Damn, NYC. You look good today, girl. And then sometimes she'll remind you of the weather. The wind in NYC today is Hawaii's wind. It gently licks, tickles, reminds you. It rouses your heart from slumber or numbness. It's charged. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely charged. <laughs> definitely I mean, charged. Yeah. Especially today. It's charged with, uh, sometimes with pollution, sometimes with radiation. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would take NYC pollution over LA pollution. I would too. Any day. I would too. That L.A. pollution just settles like a blanket yeah. over the valley. They call it, like, such a beautiful sunset, and it's really smog. Right. I know. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and then sometimes she'll remind us of our neighborhoods, our favorite neighborhoods of New York City. I like Chinatown so much because it's not precious. It's grounding in that way. It doesn't care about me, and that's so New York of it. And also, what happens late at night in Chinatown? Who insists on Smash Bowl at 1 a.m. in Chinatown, followed by a run over the bridge? We do. Well, I don't know what Smash Bowl is to insist on it. <laughs> I, I actually, <laughs> but, I don't know what it is either. <laughs> we're going to take a trip to Chinatown at 1 a.m. <laughs> I know, Carla. Can you tell us about Smash Bowl? Tweet about Smash Bowl. What are the rules? And then sometimes she'll remind us of the smells of Manhattan. Just walked by a man that was wearing the cologne I wear. I love Manhattan. Smell ghosts. <laughs> yeah, and that's awesome. You ever had a smell ghost? Yeah, um, my mom. But uh, I smelled my mom the other day. Aww. Her perfume, yeah. Nice, cool. Oh, you know what's so funny? Is that I poured somebody a beer the other day that was peat roasted. And she was like, this reminds me of my dad's jacket. And I was like, Really? And I was like, that's amazing. I was like, well, you know, it is, it is peat roasted, so it smells like scotch. And then she realized, she was like, oh, my God, you've spilled scotch all over his jacket all the time because he used to drink scotch well, all the time. Oh, I was going to say, um, that's what he told us. <laughs> <laughs> and um, <clears throat> Carla, though, she always has a cool way for us to look at the world of wine. Check out her view of Zierfendler. If Shore Rebe is Riesling's kinky cousin, doing everything Riesling won't, then Zierfindler is Gruner Vetliner's equivalent kink match. Wow. Yeah, that's 
Makes you want to go get a glass of Zierfeller right now, doesn't it? Yes, I'm sure, baby. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And uh, sometimes she'll sometimes she'll talk about smells and aromatics. Just broke apart a perfume aromatically. Fascinated now by the texture of scent. You ever work with scent texture? Everyone, try saying that five times fast. Scent texture. Scent texture. Scent texture. Scent texture. Scent texture. Did it, Franz? Yeah, all the time. Uh, a lot of the drinks that, uh, a lot of the cocktails that we make, um, you wanna you wanna layer, you know, the aromatics. So, for instance, if we have a cocktail involving like egg whites. You don't want the egg white to be the first thing going into the you know customer's uh, nostrils. So you don't you, you don't like to sit around smelling eggs. Just in the morning, no. just fried <laughs> eggs in the morning. <laughs> so what do you do? What do you do as a bartender? Oh uh, well, we uh, peel off maybe like a, a lemon a lemon peel or or the rind of an orange or something, and uh, we crush it over, release some of those oils onto the egg and. That's all it takes. So that way you're smelling the awesome orange instead of the... Mm-hmm. the you, you've layered it, so you, you have a... Scent texture. Scent texture. Scent, scent texture. texture. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Carla, for teaching us about scent texture. <laughs> and, um, and sometimes she'll talk about other restaurants. The Pines on Fire Island. Strong rosé selection. Sounds about right. The best, though, are the amazing and insightful tips on life advice that Carla can give you. And this, we're going to end with this next one, which is my favorite tweet from Carla. Life is short. Get it while you can. Get free. Get happy. Get gratitude. Get giving it all away and doing it all again every single day. Bam. Boom. Franz, thank you so wow. much for being here. <laughs> my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Aaron. <laughs> all right. Take care. Carla Rosinski is the wine director at all the famous The restaurants of Manhattan. The Breslin, The Spotted Pig, and The John Dory. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at OffsetPartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Mark Schneider of Angel Share Wines. How are you, sir? I'm great. How are you doing? Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. So you were more on the musical side of things earlier in your career. Yes. I started off in, in music, and it was pretty amazing in a lot of ways, but I'm, I was, I'm also happy to be out of it at this point. What was that scene like? I mean, what, what was the era, and who were you traveling with? That's a, that's a complicated question, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of bullet point it. So... I was a rock and roll guitar guy. I, I discovered guitar in high school, 
which then, um, you know, led to a lot of fun and starting bands and stuff. And then I started, uh, I wanted gear. I wanted equipment much like you got here. So I started to work in this really crappy plumbing supply place in Brooklyn uh, called Gelfand Plumbing. And, you know, I'd, I'd take the bus down there while all my friends were enjoying summer to work for this stuff. Um, and then I pretty much failed out of school. I left high school um, uh, in, uh, in, I guess, uh, sophomore year and worked full time, played guitar. And then after we were held up one time and the guy shot a few bullets, you know, in, about three feet in front of me, I said, you know, maybe this isn't really the gig. So I decided to go back to school. I wound up getting my GED while all my other friends were still in high school. So I was fortunate. I was a couple of years ahead. And um, I, I, because it was, I was always good at tests. So luckily I scored really well on the GED and I got all this kind of uh, scholarship offers and things like that. I wound up going to Brooklyn Conservatory for classical guitar. Um, and I went through that whole program as a, as a composition and, and uh, performance major. And I said, oh, well, you know, this would be cool. I could, I could do electric stuff. I could do classical. But then as I was getting ready to graduate and studying for my, my senior recital, I, I really started to look at what, what the program was. And my teachers were just, uh, you know, living a very difficult life. I wasn't interested in teaching. And they made it pretty clear that to make a living... It, it's virtually impossible. You have to teach and then kind of do the guitar stuff. Um, so I decided to kind of retreat back and stay stay in, in music, you know, electric kind of stuff. And I was offered this gig by a, a company I'd been working with, building my own gear, designing my own equipment called Mesa Boogie out in California. They had offered for me to move to California. I didn't want to do that. So they created a position in New York for me, running the artist relations program. And then I started setting up sounds for all the musicians that would come through with Mesa Boogie gear. And it just kind of very, very quickly developed into artists saying, hey, why don't you come out on the road with us? And that sounded pretty cool. So, you know, very quickly, I, I, I started college two years early and then graduated earlier and, and then uh, worked with Mesa Boogie for a couple of years. And then People like the Stones and Metallica would come through and offered me gigs on the road, and I took them. And uh, 20 years passed pretty pretty quickly of just being on the road, designing guitar rigs, building guitar rigs, then touring with musicians. I worked with Peter Frampton for a long time and Billy Joel and Ringo and guys like that. And um, I was just kind of fed up with being on a tour bus. But the advantage to wine was that I always had an interest in wine. My parents would, they took some class back in the 60s and they would, you know, collect wines, DRC and things like that when they were 20 bucks a bottle. And, and they, would, they would enjoy wines. And um, I was exposed to it at a very young age. I can remember drinking Chateau Lafitte, you know, being like four or five years old. Um, and we were from a really kind of low mid-income family. So th there was a lot of respect about wine and how to serve it and how to enjoy it and how to pay attention to it in my family. So I had the interest and then starting to travel around the world, I got to visit all these, you know, vineyards and wineries and I very quickly got the backstage tour and got a <laughs> the got, backstage yeah, tour. Yeah. Did you ever trade backstage tours? Oh, totally. Were you As like, not, hey, you want to hang with Ringo, bro? 
It's funny you say that because uh, really the first, uh, really the the turning point for California wines was when um, I had uh, I had met George Bursick, who was the winemaker at Ferrari Carano, and I guess this is in the early early nineties, and it, it was big. It was kind of hot back then. Yeah, it was yeah. hot. So place, like, I was, seriously, I mean, it might be hard for people to yeah. remember, but I do. Yeah. So I, I I went back to the tasting room a few times with the crew guys. I was on tour with with Ringo the second time I had gone back in a short period of time, and the guy behind the the tasting bar says, "Oh, you you live in the Bay Area?" I said, "No, no, no, I'm a New Yorker." So he said, well, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I'm on tour with who? Ringo from the Beatles. And he's like, oh, our winemaker George Bursick is the biggest Beatles fan, and, and uh, he's a drummer. So, not, you know, this was like late August. They had started harvest. So like two minutes later, he comes blazing through the tasting room, and the guy stops me and says, hey, this guy's with Ringo. So that really changed everything, and, and George started you know, taking us around. Uh, I invited him to the gig the next day. I, you know, kicked the dressing room door open. I'm like, yeah, yeah, sign this symbol for George, you know. So I, I did that hookup for George. But then he um, he would, you know, have me come and see what Harvest is about and barrel tastings and really learning things on the ground every time I would go through California and then several other places throughout the world. And then a few years later, when um, I was really interested in this thing, Pride Mountain Vineyards had just started up. It was like 94, 95. And um, I said, oh, I, I, I tried to call this guy Bob Foley. And, and you know, they like kind of laugh at me. If you, someone answers the phone, they say, hey, Bob's not around. And, and George says, well, I, I, went to, I went to school with Bob. He's like a very close friend. And, and uh, he actually saved my life one time. I was choking on a sandwich and he gave me the Heimlich. Anyway, he calls Bob up, goes in the other room, calls Bob, comes out, he says, all right, you're going to go see Bob tomorrow at three. And he says, you guys will get along just fine because he's a guitar player. So for many years after that, you know, Bob and I would just trade knowledge. Um, I would kind of share insight on guitars and pickups and electronics and, you know, things like that. And then he would, you know, we would literally swap the hours in the vineyard and, you know, we'd be talking about Gibson pickups and he'd be like, all right, all right, you know. That's enough. Tell me about this vineyard. And he would point out, you know, the leaves and, you know, this this particular, you could tell the soil's different here because, you know, the vines really want water. So I, I was fortunate to get a lot of education just hands-on with winemakers. And then with all my time sitting on tour buses and airplanes, I, I read a lot, um, everything that I could absorb about wine. And, and, you know, when I decided to start Angel Share it was a real advantage in a way because I had, uh, I, I had the, the perception to look around the market and, and try and see, you know, the wines that people would want to drink like me and my friends and the wine directors. And, um, I saw a real hole in the current distribution model that existed. So it, it was pretty organically developed. Cause I remember we had, uh, we had lunch one time at Gotham and, mm -hmm. and we were talking and it, it seemed like you knew, like you were a little ahead of the game for what was on the east coast from the west coast you were kind of pretty tight with some things that were happening in terms of west coast wines well i think it's just you know I, I wouldn't say i know more or less than anyone i think i just had a different uh you know coming having never worked in the wine business i didn't get caught up into some of the the protocols that are the norm and i think that that was in a lot of ways an advantage i had a little bit more hands-on experience and less 
uh, proper training or experience in restaurants or certainly experience in business because um, you know that was all really a learning process and I've, I've, I found out from the beginning that um, you know having a business based on what you love is great but having a business that works based on what you love is great but very difficult and to make those two marry is is always a challenge and continues to be the biggest challenge for distribution. What were some of the like kind of like oh I didn't realize that kind of moments that came along down the line? There, I think there's a, there's a lot. I mean, um, probably the biggest thing for distribution or the biggest disappointment in distribution in general is the competitive nature. I view competition like if you think about the music business, there's not bands that compete against one another. They, they try to embrace and, you know, all ships rise in the tide kind of thing. And in distribution, you know, historically, there's not a great camaraderie. And I've been trying to change that. Um, I, you know, I heard you mention David Weissenhofer before. He's a close friend. And, you know, I believe in, in incubating other businesses, not because they would create competition, but you can enhance one another as a business. So one of the biggest disappointments and, and, you know, learning curves was that it, you know, that sort of nature does exist in the wine business. And, and it's, it's difficult to overcome that when people try and take brands, when people start, you know, a new arm of a company they've been with and, and want to pull brands, you know, to me, it's like, it's like dating someone's ex-girlfriend. You know, I think that there should be a responsibility to go out as, as a, as a purveyor, as a distributor and find good products that you can build, not kind of take products that have already been built and try to like steal them from one from another. Because what does that really tell you about the whole, um, you know, uh, model of the people that you're working with? So that was one of the challenges is, is the disappointment in seeing, um, you know, how, how as great as the people in the wine business are, they can also be a little bit difficult. And, um, dishonest or, or whatever and is that coming out of the fact that the, your relationship with foley was really strong early on and then it turned out that he became quite popular like and so are you really saying that people tried to steal foley from you at different times not so much foley i would say and as a matter of fact when i started angel share i did not work with foley he was with martin scott and had a great relationship there and i was really careful to not ever encroach upon that relationship he had a great relationship with noah bass noah bass was a, an, an amazing assistant to me when i started the business and nice I guy great, great guy and i have such a wild respect for someone like that who was a visionary and you know a few people had said hey you're kind of doing like what noah did and to me that was a huge compliment because i think that he was really one of the guys to find you know the cool brands um but you know, I was very careful to not step on those toes and try to take that brand. I mean, it would have been probably relatively easy given the relationship, but it was several years of work of, uh, of having Angel Share in existence before we even started working together. And that was only because a disconnect started to exist. And he, he when I say he, Bob had gone to Martin Scott many times and said, listen, you know, here's the disconnect I see and, and here's what I'd like to do. But I, I never wanted to take that brand, you know, which is, you know, it, just that just that word, take that brand, you know, I mean, that's something I really, 
don't like about the wine business. And, you know, if things develop organically, that's cool. Anytime a, a brand comes to me, which is often these days, my first question is not like, hey, what, tell me about your wines. If they've been in the market, the, what I do first is set up a meeting uh, and say, tell me about your relationship that existed and where it went wrong. Because, you know, what I'm not looking to do is take someone's work, hard work, because distribution, proper distribution is very difficult. I'm not looking to capitalize on someone else's work. I'd like to create my own, you know, kind of base. So I like to try and find out where they're coming from and, and to, you know, see where the disconnect is. And, and if, if it's not really a dysfunctional relationship that's currently in place, I try to encourage them to fix that relationship and say, like, you know, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. And the same thing, you know, it's disappointing with, uh, when other distributors try to grab brands or take brands. That, that to me, is, is it's insulting. So on both sides, because the, mm -hmm. the people on the winery might say like, ah, you know, if we, if, if we just had a distributor that understood what we were about, we could double our sales. Yeah. And then on the distribution side, they're saying like, well, we got a lot of customers. We need more products to sell them. It takes a long time to find ones that are really good. But there's that one that's really good that someone else is already bringing in. What if we offered them, you know, <laughs> cash up front and made it a sweeter deal for them? You know, we could we could make it a, a move on that. Yeah, that that's the common situation. I mean, that's pretty much what happens. And yeah, it's it's disappointing on both sides. I think uh, it would be great to have a wine market that kind of goes back to the original concept of distribution you know, which is building relationships, having customers, because that's the strongest thing you could really have, you know, is trust and relationships within these, uh, you know, um, distribution partnerships. Um, I've never asked for a favor from an account, which we're pretty proud of. And because of that, you know, it's a balanced relationship. It's not um, that we're trying to sell a lot of wine. We're trying to do the best job we can finding good homes for good wines and um it doesn't always work out but you know it's uh, at least that's the goal when did you start the company i technically started in 2000 in 2000 and then 9-11 came along and it was a very difficult time you know i lost a lot of friends and um i also had my paperwork in the towers there was an atf office in the towers um, so I had to really start over. So I really kind of gravitated back to my comfort zone, which was music. And so I, I right after 9-11, I, I had been working with The Who and Billy Joel. And so we, uh, we did the concert for New York and I was involved in all, all those programs. And then I did, uh, the subsequent Billy Joel tour. Billy Elton was after that. I had to resubmit all my paperwork. So in the end, even though I started the process in 2000, um, my licensing didn't come through in full until April of 2004. So it's been since April of 04. And it, I mean, to jump ahead a little bit, it, it's, it's kind of odd that in a way you had that disaster happen right after you started your first business. And then you had a disaster happen right after you started Red Hook Winery, which <laughs> you were also a principal of, um, are you just bad luck or what, what happened? Or? You know, in a lot of ways I'm grateful because, um, hardships make you work harder it, it uh you know what doesn't kill you makes you stronger in, in a lot of ways the winery thing was unfortunate um and and was really kind of shitty timing wise but really at the end of the day it made us refocus what 
what was important about Red Hook Winery. And I feel like it's stronger now than it's ever been. The fact that we can kind of circle back and incubate people like Bianca and Jack and even, you know, all of all of the growers, which is the principle of Red Hook Winery, really kind of fortifies the the concept of community. So how did that project uh, get going? Red Hook? Yeah. It began as a joke. Abe Schoner, um, well, I'll back up a little bit. I've always loved Red Hook. I started a company with Peter Frampton in 1997 called Framptone. And I designed little talk boxes and things with Peter and, and good time, and great products and so on. And I needed boxes. So Cornell Paper and Box, local you know, box producer in Brooklyn, was in Red Hook. I went down. They sent me to the warehouse to pick up the boxes. I went down the pier. Of course, there's no sign, as in typical Red Hook fashion. And I got to the end of the pier, Pier 41. I saw the Statue of Liberty, and it, it, it imprinted at that moment. And um, I decided I'd really like to be in Red Hook. So when I, when I started Angel Share later on, I started out of my home, and then I needed an actual office, so I wanted to go to Red Hook. My father told me I was crazy. And uh, we had a big Thanksgiving Day argument. And my grandmother turned around and said, yeah, get your office in Red Hook. And I did. And Abe Schoner, um, who's one of uh, my friends and producers, would come into town to work the market and establish his brand. I think I, I was his first distributor, uh, or certainly one of the first. And um, he would stay in Red Hook. And at first he was like, oh, I don't get it. And then after staying there a few times, he was just enamored by the neighborhood, the spirit, the soul, the industrial kind of nature of, of uh and the funkiness of, of Red Hook. So, you know, he just kept saying, wow, I wonder if I should get an apartment here. I'd love to spend more time here. I said, well, spend more time. Let's put a winery here. And you spend more time here. And we laughed. And then we really started thinking about it more. And it, and it, it made sense. Um, it made sense for me personally for a lot of reasons. Um, one was obviously to spend more time. The other was, you know, I've always been influenced by Billy Joel, um, who's a friend. And I feel has done an amazing job of fortifying his kind of Long Island thing and, and the fishing community. And so wouldn't it be great to, to kind of uh, jumpstart this region a little bit, just put some new eyes on it, not try to outdo what they're doing, but to enhance it, bring it a little closer to the city, having been out to the North Fork and the you know South Shore um, and seeing the dynamic of what's there, the tour buses and the engagement parties. Let's bring a serious wine community of our local growing region right near the city. Um, so, you know, and, and then obviously just to kind of reinvigorate that industrial spirit of, of New York and specifically Red Hook. So it was multi-pronged. It was a terrible business model. I mean, we never even, we never even fleshed out numbers. Um, we very quickly slapped it together, put it in the spot on the corner of Dwight and Van Dyke, which is an amazing space. Um, but we outgrew that pretty quickly um, just because we have 70 different wines you know two winemakers and all these different vineyards split into multiple blocks so just from a management perspective we outgrew the old space and then um, the opportunity to go to that space that I drove down Pier 41 and saw the Statue of Liberty the space came available I jumped on it immediately never hit the market and uh, we moved the winery over in 2012 you know a year ago so how did you decide to do two different winemakers and a lot of different small batches? Well, um, that's also one of the principles I'm, I'm remaining heavily focused on in terms of what's happening in the wine market. I think it's really dangerous um, and disappointing that the wine market is splintering. 
I think it's splintering a yeah. lot. That's what part of why we do the show. Yeah. Just and it's, to uh, try to have a conversation amongst splinter factions, really. I, th- I think it's important. You know, at the end of the day, you have to, you have to understand it's all wine. So you can't have the hipster guys saying, oh, that wine's crap. You don't drink that. You know, and then, then the more traditional guys saying the same thing about the other style. So you need to embrace styles. In, of my friends and winemakers, I can't think of two more opposite type uh, artists than Abe and Bob. And so when Abe and I came up with the concept, I said, you know, this will be great. But what do we want to do? We want to establish the, quote, terroir or the spirit or the idea or the, you know, kind of vibe. If someone talks about Burgundy, you paint a picture in your, in your head. If someone says, you know, Chilean wines, you know, you, you pretty much have a fingerprint of what you expect. Long Island, I don't know, not so much. So we said, well, you know, there's an opportunity here to establish, you know, what the vibe is for this region. And not to outdo anyone but to create all these different expressions. And with each, each expression, what we could do is, let's take uh, clone 76 Chardonnay from Jamesport Vineyard. Um, now there's three clones in that vineyard. What someone would normally do is take all three clones, blend them, make one wine, plus probably Chardonnay from four other vineyards. What we do is we harvest each you know, block separately. We farm each block separately, um, encourage them to do pretty dramatic, crazy farming things experiment to try and get the best results and um and then divide each block into two winemakers so abe takes half of the fruit bob takes the other half sometimes christopher will take a little fruit and um christopher who's on site yep winemaking yep and they'll kind of establish their own you know what we what we equate it to is imagine you give two artists a palette of five colors and you say paint a tree you're going to have two trees of the same five colors, but they'll almost definitely be very different. The similarities, similarities, however, that to me defines terroir. So we're trying to define the terroir of the region. We're trying to promote and spotlight our local growing region and encourage people to think more local and support local. And I think our biggest achievements thus far have not been making you know whatever type of wines i think they've been exposing people to mccary vineyard and jamesport vineyard and and palmer and and you know people that would not have normally come across these wines um even you know jesse from union square uh, after coming to the winery and tasting wine from jamesport and mccary directly asked hey uh who works with jamesport vineyard can you hook me up with uh, you know what what are they doing and that to me is is uh that's that's all we want to do we want to help them and what was the situation with the growers when you went out to meet them and said, hey, I'm interested in purchasing your, purchasing your grapes? I mean, what are they like? What's their situation in terms of agriculture? I mean, what, what, what's up out there? It's, it's all over the place. It's a wild card. It's a very, very, very difficult region to work with in terms of uh, climate, in terms of pricing. I mean, the, the fruit is expensive, the land is expensive, the farming is expensive, the, the, the climate, you know, I mean, we don't have to, you know, talk about hurricanes, two hurricanes in two years. It's brutal. Um, but, f- you know, in terms of survival, those guys are out there and they've been doing it for 30 years, which for them is a long time, but in the world of wine is a tiny, young, you know, it's a, it's a really young region. So I feel like there's a lot of opportunity to discover new things and to experiment with new things. Now, I'll give you one quick example. 
McCary Vineyard. We worked in the vineyards and, uh, you know, there was a block of Cabernet and, and we went out and said, hey, these two rows, you know, cut off all the clusters except for one. And, you know, historically they would never do that because they lose so much with botrytis and rot throughout the year, they would have no crop. However, if we started early and just, you know, super crop thinned, um, the idea was that the vine would have more energy to focus on less clusters, which came the case. And the fruit that we harvested from those two rows was actually riper and in better condition than the adjacent rows. So Joe McCary started to kind of follow that trend. Now, as a business owner, as a vineyard, you know, grower or farmer, you would never make those decisions because, you know, they're really risky. So, you know, together we can work and, and find great solutions. In the beginning, it was a little difficult because I think that the growers felt like we were trying to, you know, utilize them, you know, and use them as a stepping stone. And, and I think they're realizing that's not the case. And, and this is actually really kind of one of those old ships rising the tide uh, type situations, hopefully, where we can enhance their business and we can somehow someday become sustainable on our own. Because you put like Macari Vineyard on the label, the Absolutely. Red Hook label. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's how I first heard about Macari, who also makes wine of his own. Like mm -hmm. he has wine that yeah. he makes under yeah. his own label. So Which is great. I, I didn't mean, know that. You yeah, know? and there's a perfect example. I mean, here you are in probably the greatest, you know, wine market in, in the world. And, you know, and, and that we say it all the time. Wine directors in New York City don't know and haven't been to the North Fork generally. You know, you've probably been to Burgundy and, you know, uh, Piedmont and who, who knows. But it, there's a real disconnect and, and I'd like to bridge that gap. And so if we release a bottle that seems somewhat interesting and it has McCary Vineyard on it, then you might say, hmm, I wonder what McCary Vineyard's got going on. And that's then it's a win-win. Then it's then really the, the spirit of community has succeeded. And what have you seen? I mean, what, what's been the track record so far for Red Hook Winery? And, and even with the hurricane, what have been the successes? And then what, what's the future move? Well, um, it's been great. The hurricane was certainly a real hiccup. We lost a lot of wine. We lost a majority of three vintages of wine. So that poses a real challenge for us, both financially and just, you know, infrastructurally. Um, but the spirit of the community throughout the hurricane and, and the, you know, revival process has been amazing. And it's actually invigorated us to go more deeply into our commitment. Um, so it's been, it's been really well received. I think the wines, it's too early, in my opinion, to evaluate the wines because we, you know, we've released two vintages, we have some wines from the third vintage. Oh, eight was our first vintage. Um, and, you know, it takes obviously several years to, to institute farming changes and you know experiments so ultimate right now we have 70 wines but ultimately i don't think we would create 70 wines we would i don't think we'd make 70 wines i think we would make less wines as we discover the sites that are the most expressive the farmers we like working with most and um you know always searching for something new new varietals new techniques you know i think the skin fermented wines have been really eye-opening for a lot of people they're, they're obviously highly debatable which kind of goes back to our splintering of the wine uh, community, but but they're valuable. They're valuable studies in what we're doing today, what the potential is for a region, you know, what the potential is for farming. And so for, for us, it's a great 
valuable experiment on on just the wine industry. And taking a step back a bit, how did you first meet Abe, uh, Sean? I, I met Abe through a, a close friend in Napa Valley, uh, David Stevens, and uh, he was he was certainly a renegade. When we met, he showed up all sunburned, and he had a Modelo can of Modelo in his hand, and he walked in with this painted cooler with a few wines in it. And he said, yeah, I wanted to present these wines. He had just bottled them. And he was unbelievably honest. You know, I had, I had been meeting with producers, new, you know, kind of unheard of producers from Napa Valley. And it was such an exciting time. And here came Abe with this weird collection of wines, half of them labeled, half of them not labeled. And he would pull it out. He says, oh, this is probably spoiled. It was under my bed. And it's like 90 degrees in my house, but let's try it. And, oh, th this wine, I was going to pour down the drain because it went spoiled, but now I think it's kind of revived a little bit. And he was he was brutally honest about his own wines, not not in a negative fashion, not like a, a martyr type situation, but just, just honest. And it was it was refreshing. And it was refreshing that someone was willing to experiment with something. And in a lot of ways, Abe deserves uh, the credit for kind of blazing some new paths, which are actually old paths, you know, that he's kind of uncovering and um you know i think he's he's influenced a lot of other winemakers who are now trying to kind of copy that which is both uh, you know troublesome in that if people are emulating it but it's also cool in that people are trying to at least discover new things i think when when someone follows a path like that it's important to not emulate what someone is doing but emulate the spirit of what they're doing and find something new. Like if you take a, going back to painting, you know, if you wouldn't want to look at Van Gogh and say, I want, I want to paint pictures just like Van Gogh. You want to look into what they're doing and what, what makes those paintings so awesome. And, you know, I think with wine, it's important to enjoy a style, learn a style, discover something and say, I don't, you know, I don't want to emulate that, but I want to do something equally as cool with my own expression. And I think that's the challenge today. And the fact that, you know, uh, Parker's pretty much done, you know, and the, and the whole kind of rating thing is, has imploded. Um, and you've got these different styles. Right now, um, I think we're at a turning point. And so depending on what happens from here moving forward is going to really determine if there's going to be one cohesive wine market or a splinter of little kind of, you know, hipster places versus traditionalist places. And I'd prefer the former, you know, where, and that's why, that's why I chose the two guys in Red Hook Winery to say, Hey, you can do things that are completely different. Both of them are cool. You may not like both of them, but at least check them out, understand what they're trying to do and just say like, hey, that's not my bag, but at least I understand it. And it's wine. And hopefully that's where the wine community is headed. You know, it must have been interesting because you were working with uh, wines that, you know, uh, were a little bit more fruit-driven sometimes. And then you took on Abe. And, and what was it like building a market for Abe's wines in, in the Manhattan area as a distributor? It was, it was incredibly invigorating. Um, at the time, I feel like the splintering we're talking about hadn't, hadn't begun. It hadn't started. I think the first proponent of those wines was Danielle Boulud. I went in, Jean-Luc was the wine director, Jean-Luc Ledoux, and I brought in St. Harry's Chapel. 
and it was a super weird wine. It was labeled Syrah, but it was really Grenache, and it was like it was just a very strange, awesome but strange wine. And uh, Danielle happened to be there. He came out and he wound up writing a whole article on it and pairing a whole bunch of foods with it. So, you know, here's a really traditional guy in a lot of ways and really got behind Scolium Project and at the very beginning. And it wasn't about, oh, you know, well, let me steer away from that. This is a, this is a you know, fancy three-star Michelin restaurant. You know, it was about, hey, this wine is fucking cool. And he got behind it. And it was great and invigorating. And then guys like Paul Greco and Colin Olivris really also got behind the wines. Even David O'Day from Del Frisco and then, you know, Jesse from Union School. It, it, it just started this amazing community of, you know, wine. And, you know, after that is when it started, then people wanted to, to define it. Well, what is this? What is scolium? And, you know, Abe is, is guilty of of probably feeding into this kind of splintering um because he did produce a product from the region that was quite different i think if that wine was from northern italy no one would have questioned it or if it was from some obscure growing region you know it, it wouldn't have been a big deal but the fact that it, you know people viewed him as a napa producer which he wasn't really a napa producer anyway but you know people viewed him as part of the napa stable and of hundred acre and hourglass and things like that I think then people felt the need to define it. And then people, you know, it was like the, the red shirts and the blue shirts. And then whose team are you on? And that's when it started to become problematic. Um, I, could, I could call out many people, but Lyle Fass, who's a friend, you know, uh, the one thing I, I would try to warn him about is that he would, he would jump on the Abe bandwagon, but then, you know, oh, this other wine, you know, David Abreu, we went out to dinner one night. He's, this is undrinkable. This is disgusting. It's not wine. You know, that, that's a dangerous territory to actually draw the line in the sand and say that a wine is not wine or a wine is not drinkable. Or, you know, you could say, it's not my bag and, you know, build your kind of likes. But, you know, when you discard the rest of the community because you're so into the new thing, then it becomes really dangerous for all of us, for the consumer start you know most importantly the consumer and then for wine directors distributors and producers i mean it's interesting to talk to you about this because i feel like you really came out of the music business and what i personally think is that the wine thing is going to go more like the music thing like there's going to be people who listen to rihanna and there's going to be rihanna and then there's going to be marketers for rihanna and then there's going to be critics who review rihanna but those aren't the same people who do like Coltrane. You know, the critics for Rihanna are very different than the critics for Coltrane. And they all reach a different audience and they all start from a different place. And I see wine going very much that way. Like I see critics for an audience. Yeah. You know. And it's a problem. And, you know, I think that as a wine, as wine professionals, I think people need to think about Robert Mondavi. And Robert Mondavi, if, if you think about it, when he started... It was kind of, you know, the Wild West. And, you know, he really established the idea of American wines or helped establish, you know, reestablish it. Um, and then he, he started talking about California wines and then started talking about Napa Valley wines and then Oakville and, you know, really w was a proponent of the AVA system. And that's a good thing in general. But at no point did he say, well, okay, Oakville's great and Calistoga sucks. You know, because then you're splintering. 
And I had a uh, I had a conversation with a producer, a famous producer, Dunn, you know, Mike Dunn. And, you know, we, he was speaking about the high alcohol thing. You know, Randy has been, a, a, you know, against the high alcohol thing for so long. And, and I started working with Dunn. And they would, you know, be talking about Bob Foley, who's crossed the street. And, oh, I had this wine. It's, uh, you know, you can't drink those wines. And I just said, Let, let's reel back a little bit. Your enemy isn't Bob Foley. Instead of, you know, having the idea that your wines are right and Bob's are wrong or vice versa. I think that everyone in, in Napa Valley should think, hey, isn't Napa Valley an awesome place? You can make wines that are, you know, quote, balanced. You can make wines that are, quote, you know, over the top you know, from the same region. And they're both incredibly, uh, you know, dramatic in their own style. And hopefully that's what we're trying to do, you know, with Red Hook as well. Like show the diversity. Let's make really traditional kind of mainstream wines. Let's make wines that are freaking crazy and orange and all that kind of stuff. And they're both viable. They both, you know, represent wine. And um, I hope it doesn't go the way of music. I agree with you 100% on what's happened to the music industry. It's a disaster. I blame a lot of it on, you know, iPods and things which have dumbed down the, you know, you know the the listening to wine uh listening to music in, in a lot of in a lot of ways because there's no there's no forced you know uh, attention whereas when you used to buy a record when you're a kid you know you you're in for a penny in for a pound you open up the thing you put the record on you you know looking at the pictures now you just can pull one you know one one song and then that's it so yeah the the necessity to those diverse critics you know, uh, splintering the market. And that's why Red Hook, I'm trying to pull everyone back in. Let's everyone be friends, you know? And same thing, you know, when you look at European wines or wines from other regions, you know, Greek wines, I think that there are great opportunities. Um, and I think in certain ways, it's the most exciting time for wine, maybe in our American history, but it's also the scariest in that there is that potential for this massive splintering. And then, then what do I do? Do I split angel share into two and have like reps that can, you know, work with the hipster contingent and then other reps that can work with, uh, you know, suit and tie guys. So, because those are two big markets in New York right now, I think for restaurants. Yeah. They're, they're you know, obviously the two major markets and, you know, you, you can see it even in the restaurant scene. You could see the, you know, I think Momofuku was one of the first, to try and, you know, look at Co, you know, and have this like really kind of, you know, playing clash and, you know, jeans and t-shirts, but trying to produce great, you know, high level meals. And, and I agree with that. I think that that's cool, but you don't want to splinter. You don't want to um, alienate any part of it. You don't want to say, you know, well, you can't come in this restaurant if you have a jacket on, you know, that's, that's kind of the op opposite uh, uh, approach. Do you think that the desire to say, hey, this is great, the underside of that is to say, well, everything else sucks. And is that a, an American exceptionalism kind of thing? Is that like the the concern to be better than everything else? Like that that kind of idea that we often have just in our culture, like I want the best or I want to be the best. You know, there's no like, hey, I want to be 80 points or hey, I want to be the second best or hey, I'd like to, you know, get along with everybody. It's rarely a comment that you hear in grade school. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I, I think it's, 
that's actually the Europeans that started that whole program. Everything, oh, Burgundy's great, everyone else sucks, you know? Um, I think the American part of that is the desire for growth um, and finding something that works and then capitalizing the hell out of it. Like, wow, this is really cool. This restaurant concept is awesome. Let me open 90 of them in every market and dilute them to where, you know, the original concept is no longer there. I think that's more the American thing. I think the, this is great and everything else sucks. That's more a measure of, of the European influence, in my opinion. Because if, when you go to Europe, it's like, you know, they're pretty, they're not that open-minded. I remember doing a tasting that was hosted by my friend, Rick Weissman, and he invited French journalists and producers. And, you know, he opened up Harlan and all these kind of, you know, big Napa wines. And at one point, one of the guys actually got up from the table angry and stormed out. And I, and I just thought, wow, that's really interesting. You know, and, you know, that kind of closed-mindedness of this isn't wine, you know, that, that's, that exists there as well. You know, it's, it's not just on our thing. And um, I think where the Americans kind of come in is, is finding an opportunity. So now there's this, like, kind of hipster thing, you know, the mustache crowd. And, uh, you know, they're going to they're gonna beat that to death. They're going to grow that until, you know, until it's, uh, there's no more room for it. And that's okay to to flesh out and explore these ideas. But again, if it if if you explore ideas at, by sacrificing the foundation, then what do you really have? I feel like you know, I feel pretty good about being a wine distributor because I feel like I've kind of worked for it. Like I didn't really go to school and everything as we discussed, but I spent a lot of time trying to figure it out and trying to research and and you know, walking through vineyards and, and just, I feel like you have to put in the work to be, to earn it. You know, it's the same issue I have with indie musicians. I'm going to learn two chords because, you know, who cares? Now it's music. So learn everything that you can about music and then choose to play two chords. And then to me, it's a more valid statement than I'm only going to learn two chords because, you know, it's bullshit if you Anything else beyond, you know, C and E is, is all bullshit after that. And, you know, it's the same with wine. You know, a lot of the, the new kind of, the new guard coming in with wine feels that they shouldn't have to. Um, and, and that's a mistake. You know, that's to, to think that there's not a responsibility with any craft that you're involved with or any trade, um, I think is a mistake because then, yeah, you can, you can explore and find new avenues, but even Abe, you know, Abe learned a lot about wine before he started making crazy wines. He didn't just say, well, I'm not going to learn about winemaking. I'm just going to, I'm just going to pick grapes and see what happens. You know, that would be a mistake. He understands chemistry. He understands winemaking. Um, and he uses that as a foundation to, to grow and explore his, you know, options in terms of creating interesting things. One of the things that was struck me, and I've seen a lot of the same history that you've seen because i think we've kind of got in at the same time uh or roughly the same time is that you know it used to be there was one wine world and yeah there was a rivalry between different critics but there was basically one wine world and if you kind of liked wine you kind of agreed about what you liked i mean if, if somebody was into wine usually you kind of knew what they they liked i mean every so often somebody would be like oh, i'm really into white opriana or something a little different like that but yeah. in general people agreed and um there was also, 
at that time, though, a somewhat adversarial relationship with producers. There was a, an assumed thing that like, well, I'm going to try to be like Parker and be apart from that crowd because I'm going to rate them. Like, I'm going to like, oh, okay, you're going to come to me, then I'll tell you if it's good or not. Like that kind of thing as a buyer. Yeah. You know, there was kind of a, a separation between church and state in terms of like, well, you know, you're trying to sell me something. So I'm going to be very skeptical about what you tell me. I'm, you know, I'm going to really uh, keep a distance because you're trying to sell me something. Now I see both of those sides of that equation has really changed. Yeah. And a lot of what's happening, I feel like in terms of sales is happening through basically friend networks. It's just that the friend networks are very splintered friend networks and they carry through distributor to sommelier and critic too, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, so one of the things I've seen is that people get on the sommelier side or on the buyer side, they get much closer to producers than it used to be. And sometimes that manifests itself wonderfully in, in relationships and understanding about the wines. Um, and then other times I feel like some of it is basically a shill circle where people are um, a little too close to too much of a click the supply side. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just an automatic rubber stamp for the friend network. Yeah. I mean, am I onto something? Am I wrong? Am I I agree with you hundred percent. There's a real danger to it. Um if you can maintain that relationship, I mean, think about why that relationship is closer. Because historically, someone come into the market you know, with a distributor, you meet, you shake hands, you'd see them every time it comes through town. Now you're like, you know, it's Twitter, Facebook. Now you're like Facebook friends all of a sudden, you know, let me text them from my iPhone. Now that relationship has virtually, uh, you know, it's the same as the distributor relationship, which is fine. That's not the danger. The danger is making sure that everyone can maintain the professionalism of that relationship and be able to call bullshit when something's not cool instead of just like, oh, well, he's my friend, so I'm going to support everything he does, meaning, you know, a buyer to a producer or a distributor to a producer. I think that relationship needs to be very, very clear and to always be professional because it's great, you know, utilize our current state of you know, communication and the, and the ease of communication, utilize that to your advantage. But again, it, it could, it's also something that can easily be abused. And if it becomes a vehicle to create clicks, like you're talking about, that's when it fails. That's why I'm, I mean, I'm not on Facebook. I, I have like a Facebook page. People hate me because I never, I've never once responded to someone on Facebook. Um, because I just feel like, you know, once you start, then, then you're married to that. And I think it's a great tool, but you have to be able to utilize it in a professional manner to enhance one's, like, let's say you as a buyer and a producer, utilize that relationship, communicate with the producer, letting him know what the feedback of the consumer in your restaurant is. Then that's valuable. And, you know, you could also then influence that producer by sharing ideas or, or you know, what people are asking for. Not that the producer should, you know, change dramatically you know same thing with, with the distributor say like hey you know i'm getting this kind of feedback for, from this wine or hey this people are loving this and you know that communication becomes a positive thing but yeah i think it's really dangerous when it does become clicky and i see it all over the city i mean you see like you walk into an account you're like oh you know there's the uh, you know you could tell who who they're pals with and you know we talked about relationships right from the beginning that's good and that's strong and it's great that someone has a relationship 
but they should also remain open-minded and they should use that relationship to increase their knowledge of wine, but not close all the other doors around them and only have that one small orb of, of availability. Do you feel like in a, in a way it's a response to a wine world that's gotten so big that people just narrow it down to what they can deal with by shutting a lot out? Well, I think, I think people, whether it be a consumer, a distributor, wine people want a little bit more of a personal contact. I think they'll deny that, but I think inherently, if you had the choice to buy a piece of equipment, one that you could order online and one that you could walk downstairs and pick up in the store, and now there's a choice of three different models, if they're the same price, I think anyone would choose to walk down and touch it with their hands. So I think that inherently, even though people utilize all this uh, technology, I think they want to have relationships. So I think by establishing these kind of clicks, maybe par partially it's, it's the you know, overwhelming market that is available. But I think more importantly, it's something that they can kind of put their stamp on and they can kind of delve deeper into the relationship and feel like it's a little bit more personal. When I talk about the importance of relationships, I think there's still a desire to have that. So as the electronic world becomes more prominent and the, uh, you know, the ability to kind of do these things electronically, it becomes more clicky because people are then trying to have some meaning to what they're doing and they don't want to dumb it down electronically. So that's why they, they tend to work with someone that they can have a relationship with. And even if they work with that one person or one distributor more deeply electronically, you know, they still have some connection there. And I think that that desire will never go away. Is that part of what drew you to doing something with New York? Because you said, you know, it is challenging for these growers. And, you know, there's no real need that Mark Schneider needed to do a New York grower project, but you did. And Absolutely. I mean, what was the foundation for that for you? Are you a guy who identifies with New York? Did you want to be able to drive out and see these guys on a regular basis? I mean, what was it? Uh, it's, a, it's a good point. Um, very much so. I mean, again, inspired by Billy's work. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn. I traveled the world for 20 years. I, when Growing up, I used to think that New York sucked. You know, when I was a kid, I'd be like, ah, oh, I hate the city. And, the, you know, the city was a little different those, those days. But um, after traveling around for 20 years, I came back every time saying, New York is the best freaking city on earth. You know, I mean, there are great cities and I've been to a lot of them, most of them, but there's no place like New York. So I wanted to plant some deep roots. I believe in the deep roots. That's what I love about Brooklyn. You know, the city doesn't have as many deep roots. I know everyone on my block. I know everyone on the block that I grew up with. And, you know, you don't want to necessarily let that go away. It's the sense of community. Um, now, even though it's a kind of a little bit more of a migrating kind of scene these days, community and the idea of community still exists. So the idea of Brooklyn and the winery w was very much so to kind of rah-rah Brooklyn so, and, and New York, New York, you know, products, New York support, um, you know, try and build something that for the future, I mean, everyone asked, said, where do you want to be in 20 years for Red Hook Winery? And for me, if someone said, hey, you know, Red Hook Winery assisted in getting, um, you know, the local region, the North Fork of Long Island or uh, New York wines 
to the next level, that would be 100% success in my book, even if we never made a dollar. Because um, I think it's important. I think it's important to plant those roots, keep them, and follow them through. And, you know, we talked a lot about the challenges of the market and what it means to build something and then see it maybe taken away, either by natural disaster or because of, of com- competitors. But, I mean, who is Mark? As, as I guess would be my question. You know, we've talked a lot about trends, ins and outs of how things have developed in terms of computer communication. But, I mean, how does Mark have a good time? <laughs> I mean, I know you're into music, but, I mean, besides the job, who are you? I'm the luckiest guy in the world because I've spent my entire life, except when I worked at the, the shitty plumbing supply place, doing things that I love. And, you know, I've got friends who work on suit and tie kind of, kind of jobs that they really hate. And I'm really fortunate. Um, people say, oh, all you do is work. It's really all I do is play because work is kind of what I like to do. Now, there are challenges. And as I said today, my biggest challenge is staying small and staying focused and, and really kind of polishing the type of work that we do, both on Angel Share front and Red Hook Winery front. But at the end of the day, it's a hell of a lot better than working at Morgan Stanley or something, you know, because that's just not me. So, you know, I'm really lucky. I would say I am, you know, what I do. And I'm just really fortunate that I get to still kind of keep a foot in the music world. And I get to do this awesome wine stuff and um, hopefully create something, you know, some sort of legacy some sort of concept and build upon that for both the regional kind of support local thing and maybe, you know, even with distribution. I feel, you know, being able to inspire other businesses to do the same. I think we were the first urban winery or whatever. Um, But now if you look around, it's like now everyone wants to do it. Bianca, who is here, you know, it's great to have people like that trying to do something. And as long as they want to do it for the right reasons, I support it 100%. And, you know, that that's who I am, is, is someone that's been really fortunate to be given the opportunity to do something they love and then help other people do something that hopefully they love and create a better, a better market, a better wine market. You know, wish I could do more in music, wish I had more energy. But, um, you know, I, I feel like uh, I'm certainly the luckiest person around. Mark Schneider of Angel Share Wines, a distributor in the New York area. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks so much, Levy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.